Hey, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 3. We are going to jump right in here, and we're going to ask a question I think has to have crossed every person's mind in this room at one point or another. And uh, it's a challenging question, but I think a good one. What are the biblical signs of genuine Christian conversion? Or to say it another way, how do you know if somebody's saved? Are they saved just simply because they say they are? Or would we expect to see anything else? Now, the reason that's a hard question is because the minute we start to try and quantify or measure or observe salvation in a person's life, there's some subjectivity associated with that. And you start to wrestle with, well, how much is enough? What, what do I need to see? What if I don't see this or that? Like, there's all of these things. But I do believe that the scriptures give us signs of life. It's in there. I want to mention some to you. The first I'll mention is repentance. First Thessalonians 1.9, Paul specifically wrote to that church that he had heard of evidence that they had turned from idols to God. That's repentance. So at least it's, it's some kind of indication. Something happened there, right? Water baptism. That's a sign that Jesus literally gave his church to say, if you're saved, if you have entrusted your life to Christ, you do that. Because that tells everybody there's something that happened inside of you that they can't see. You bring that out so that they can The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, on down the line there. Those are the fruit of God's work in your life through the person of the Holy Spirit. You can't produce that fruit if you're not saved. Obedience to Scripture, 1 John 2, 3, he writes, By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Now, once again, we get a little uncomfortable there. So like, how many commandments? How often? Do you do that perfectly or kind of 70% of the time? That's where we get uncomfortable. But we have to at least say that a sign of salvation in a person's life is some expression of obedience to what God has said. Love, 1 John 4, 7. He says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if you see love in a person's life, there's a chance that they know Christ. None of those things will save you. So important for us to remember. These are signs, not means of salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, how are we saved? By grace, through faith, not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works. There's literally nothing, absolutely nothing that you or I can do to earn forgiveness, grace, and mercy. If there were something that we could do, it's no longer a gift. 
So those things can't save you, but they are indicators of genuine spiritual life. Now, one other indicator that comes up several times in the book of Hebrews is a word that once again can cause a lot of discomfort and confusion, but we're going to talk about it today because it's in the text, and that is perseverance. You may have heard the phrase perseverance of the saints. That is the idea that someone remains faithful to the end. Paul said, right, I have finished the race. That's a picture of perseverance. He had come to the end of his life and he had said, I did not quit. I didn't give up. I didn't lose heart. Now, did Paul have bad days? Absolutely. 100%. Yes. Did he have to confess sin? For sure. Oh, yeah. Paul's a sinner. He says he was chief among sinners. But he said at the end of his life, I have finished the race. I have persevered. And that would be evidence, an indicator that he had genuine spiritual life. Now, to be clear, perseverance isn't a condition of salvation. It is an indication that salvation has taken place, and that's a huge distinction. To say it another way, we are not saved because we persevere. We persevere because we are saved, and the order of those things is very important. Now, certainly, there are some around that would profess faith in Christ or claim to be Christians, right, that might ultimately show to not be Christians. Uh, this shows up in 1 John 2.19. John writes, they, he was speaking of a group of people that had rejected their faith. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued. There's the idea. They would have continued with us. They would have persevered. But they went out that it might become plain that they all were not of us. So, very important. To be in proximity with other people who are saved does not make us saved. And just to say that we're saved doesn't make us saved. The only way we're saved is by literally placing our trust in Christ to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, to, to lay down his life, to cover our sin and ransom our lives from the consequences of sin. Our passage today is going to confront this idea of persecution or perseverance, and it's going to give us practical terms around like, how do we persevere? How does that actually happen in a person's life? Here's the big idea that we'll work on as we go throughout our passage. God's family members, so we're talking about saved people. God's family members need to focus on the faithfulness of Jesus. Now, you may feel a little bit like a letdown, like, really? That's all you got? We got to focus on Jesus. Well, you're going to have to take that up with the writer of Hebrews because that's what he says. See, it's not that complicated. 
not hard to understand, very difficult to apply. Consider Jesus. That's the advice that we get from the writer of Hebrews. Let's pick it up in chapter 3. And it does point us backwards. The first word in chapter 3 is therefore. So it's pointing us back to what has come previously in chapters 1 and 2. And with a gigantic summary statement, I'll say this. What he is about to tell us to do is based upon the unrivaled supremacy of God's Son over all of creation and the angelic multitudes. Now, if you need more than that, go back and listen for the last four or five weeks, and you'll get a lot more detail. But based on all of that, in chapters 1 and 2, the writer says this, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. There are some key terms here that we want to make sure we understand because this is going to essentially set the table for the remainder of the passage. He references brothers, and we can put sisters in there as well. He's speaking to the family of God. Those are family references. And one of the most beautiful things about the Christian life that we are said to be adopted into God's family. So if you look around the room, if if there's another Christian in the room, that is your brother or sister. You are, spiritually speaking, family. Both of you are children of God. Now, remember, in this context, these are specifically Jewish Christians. That's going to matter for some of the statements that are going to be made. And even going into next week, this passage sets up what Jeff will cover next week in terms of some of the history of Israel. But we're talking about family. This family is described as holy. That word means to be set apart. So God's people are not only adopted and identified with him, but then they are set apart as a different community from the world. It is a positional truth of Christian identity. It's a distinctive, it's not just a a throwaway word or a, a, a subtle adjective. It's like they are holy because they have been made holy by the one who brought them into his family. Next, the writer references being called, a heavenly calling. And I I think the best way for me to think about that is to say, I have been called from, to, and for heaven. So my heaven, my calling came from heaven. I'm being called to heaven, that's my ultimate destination, and I'm being called for the purposes of heaven. In other words, God's redemptive plan, what he's doing, I'm called for that purpose in my life. All of those distinctions define one who is saved. Okay? Now, what's the command? What's the imperative? What are we to do if those are true of us? Consider Jesus. 
Now, in English, unfortunately, it sounds a little bit like you kind of sit down somewhere under a tree maybe and look up at the sky and think, hmm, Jesus. <laughs> and you just sort of kind of meditate there for a minute. This word actually has a great deal of intensity and intentionality around it. It, it might be better to say, say, take note of Jesus, notice him, fix your thoughts on him. Notice the intentionality there. Focus your attention to Jesus. Now, that must mean that we can obviously think about anything, anytime, anywhere, right? I wonder if someone were to follow any one of us around during the day and they were able to log every thought that we have. I wonder what percentage of those thoughts would be directed to considering, fixing our thinking on Jesus. That's a little sobering. A little bit convicting, let's keep moving. <laughs> great effort, great intentionality, and you and I in our flesh, our flesh is constantly opposed to doing just that. There is everything else in the world that we would, in our natural sense, rather think about than Jesus. What is it about Jesus that we're specifically told to notice? The phrase in there, the apostle and high priest of our confession, I think that's the key. And uh, it's interesting, both of those titles are unique to Hebrews. They don't show up anywhere else in our New Testament. But here, Jesus is called the apostle and the high priest of our confession. That is, again, indicating that someone has said, I have entrusted my life to Christ. I believe in him. And he is the apostle and high priest of that confession. So those two titles, the apostle literally means, apostle means sent one. So he is designated as the one who was sent. It's interesting, he is both the messenger and the message. He came, literally, the incarnation, he takes up residence in the earth as a man to tell people about himself. So that they might know that he is the way, the truth, and the life, the only one through whom uh, mankind can be restored to relationship with God. He is the living word pointing humanity to life, showing them the way. He's the apostle, and that is a definite article. That means he is the one and only apostle. All other apostles, you ought to use a little a. Then he's the high priest, which in Judaism, that would have been the highest religious uh, office. That, that's the one person, and they have this very important task annually. Um, they go in on the Day of Atonement. They go into the temple, the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelt prior to the new covenant. He goes in there. And he offers sacrifices for all of Israel and himself. And by going through what God required there, he is expressing faith on behalf of Israel and the blood that covers the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, that was, that was this little box that God had given his people. 
and over it. When the blood was spread there, it was to symbolize covering the sins of all of those people. It anticipated a savior, a Messiah, who would shed his blood and it would cover the sins of all of humanity. That was the picture. The high priest was the one who did that. Only one, one time a year. Jesus is referenced as the, again, definite article, the high priest. He would enter the holy of holies and go there on behalf of sinful humanity to satisfy the wrath of God so that forgiveness would even be a possibility. That's the great high priest. So these two titles together, you can think of it this way. As the apostle, Jesus represented God to man. And then as the high priest, Jesus now represents men to God in heaven. Now, if you were to need some motivation for considering this one, let me offer some thoughts. We're going to look at the subject of perseverance as we get to the end of the passage. I think that will give us some motivation. But as I thought about those two titles, the apostle and the high priest, I wondered about what those two titles actually mean for me, not just him. Now, here's what I know about me, and you may know this as well. I am self-reliant. I am self-righteous. I am self-absorbed. Are you getting the picture? And when I see apostle and high priest, what I see is what I need. They scream to me my desperate need. Because if I weren't those things, then I wouldn't need an apostle or a high priest, right? I'd be fine. I can take care of myself. I can get there all alone. But apparently, I and all of us need an apostle and a high priest. Left to myself, the very best thoughts that I've ever thought, those would be evidence for my depravity. Those would be the very thing that God could use to say, nope, you didn't make it. I mean, really good thoughts, but not enough. You're still lost. You're still deceived. You're still darkened in your understanding. Without an apostle, without one sent from heaven to actually help me know what is true, I would live in utter deception. I also need a high priest. I need one who can do for me what I cannot, spiritually speaking, do for myself. If salvation is a gift, that means that literally there is nothing I can do to earn it. So I am helpless, hopeless, desperate without a priest who can stand in between and advocate on my behalf, mediate for me with a holy God. Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, represents the fact of our helplessness 
And I'm very convinced of this, that the more in tune I am with my helplessness, I believe this is true of you as well, the more motivated I am to consider the one who is my apostle and my high priest. Well, why the comparison with Moses? That might seem a little bit strange. We do need to keep in mind, again, this letter is written primarily to Jewish Christians. And so Moses makes all the sense in the world to them, especially given their circumstances. Remember, this is an incredibly difficult time. They are being persecuted. Life is hard. But the reason that it's hard is because they've identified with Jesus, not Moses. See, Judaism, it kind of works okay with Rome and other, you know, nationalities. It's like, well, you know, you guys just kind of do your religious thing over there. And it's not as if they were persecuting Jews. They were persecuting Jewish Christians. So the tendency would be, wouldn't it? to just drift back into what you know, to live in that familiar place where I'm religious, but I'm in the Old Testament, not in the New. I'm going to distance myself from Jesus, but Moses, man, what a guy. Everybody loves Moses. Everybody respects Moses. And think about his story. I'm, this doesn't even begin to approach the magnitude of it. But just, and, and you may, just think about this for a minute. But just all by itself, his miraculous delivery through a river. In, remember the basket. He gets picked up and brought into where? Pharaoh's house. That all by itself. Amazing. But he stays there. What spectacular provision that God made for him to land him there. 40 years in a humbling, transformational experience in Midian after he murdered an Egyptian. Then called miraculously, actually it's just miracle after miracle, you know, called from a burning bush by who? God. Have you had God just show up in something on fire near you and said, hey, can we talk? Called to lead all of Israel, millions of people out of bondage to the most powerful nation on earth at the time. To lead them out of bondage into freedom. By the way, through not around or over, through the Red Sea. I, I could go on and on and on. He is perhaps the, if not one of the most spectacular characters in all of the Bible. So when you start thinking about Judaism and Moses... That's a real convenient place to go. But the writer of Hebrews is saying what? Jesus is better. As great as Moses is, as great as Judaism was, Jesus is better. Now, he's better, in, better than Moses in a few ways. Um, both were faithful, as we're going to see. 
But the role and the relationship that Jesus has with God the Father is quite a bit beyond the role and relationship that Moses had. And I, I just want to caution us against the idea that, well, like, duh. I mean, we're talking about Jesus here. But see, that's the point. See, we just sort of accept like, well, yeah, Jesus and Moses. And then that's it. We're told to fix our minds on that reality. We're supposed to remember that there's a million other things that we could go to for significance and security and power and freedom and all of that, things that are counterfeits to the only one true thing that can actually give us life. We're to fix our attention on that. I think Moses was like a spiritual backstop for the people of Israel who had come to Christ. He was was like a contingency plan for them, that if this Christianity thing either gets too hard or doesn't really work out that well, well, I can always go back to Moses, and Moses represents everything about Old Testament law and religion. When you look to even the greatest among mankind for help and hope, you set your sights far below the only place where help and hope can be found. So we might want to ask the question, what's my spiritual backstop? What what is it that I sort of have in my back pocket just in case? Because... Perseverance is a real thing. It's it's actually a decision to stay in it, to stay in the hard, to suffer well, to finish strong, to not lose heart. And the only reason you do that is because you have one alternative, period. And the writer of Hebrews is saying it's Jesus. And if you have him, then you really can Stay in it all the way to the end and never give up. My spiritual backstop, I I tried to think about this. You know, I've been in ministry um, for 36 years in some form or fashion. And uh, what I came away from this passage with is that's my backstop. I go, I can go to ministry activity for significance, for security, for assurance. It makes me feel better, makes me feel like I'm somebody, makes me feel like I'm okay. But Jesus is better, right? Ministry is a beautiful thing to be called to do, but that's not my identity. That's not why I'm saved. That's a very poor source of assurance because what if that ended tomorrow? Jesus is better than anything and everything that we might look to for life and all that means life to us. Well, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that um, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses 
as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, this is a reminder that for all the glory that could be attributed to glory or to Moses, and there's plenty of it, he was just merely a part of what the son and the father had constructed, if you think of building terms. Beginning with the universe, go back to Genesis 1, and we see all that God has made, and then everything after it, apparently, all things, the builder of all things is God. So everything from the very first moment when God spoke the universe into being with a word, everything after that, he's the builder. And so just from a, from a glory perspective, of course, Jesus has more glory than Moses. Moses is created. His life is sustained by God. He doesn't accomplish that on his own. How could Moses or anything else that has been made achieve the glory of the maker? But isn't it just like us to confuse the creation with the creator? That's what Paul says in Romans 1. When he was speaking of the condition of humanity, he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's our problem. We're willing to give worship to everything but God. That's our most natural tendency. Now, to Moses' credit, verse 5, it says, he was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So uh, we should realize here, Moses is nowhere in this passage denigrated. He is honored. He is still the the greatest among those in Israel. But comparatively, he falls far short of his creator, of his maker. So the writer reiterates that Moses faithfully fulfilled his assignment. And he actually served as a Christ-like figure for Israel. They were able to see him and all that he did and all that he was and anticipate an even better one, a Messiah, a Savior who would come where Moses is a a very limited picture of who that person might be, but it, it suggests there's one coming that will be all that you need. That was the role that Moses played in terms of testifying, giving a witness or a picture of things to come. So Moses was faithful, verse 5, in all God's house as a servant 
to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So just very quickly and very easily, there's a great contrast here. Moses was faithful in God's house as a what? A servant. Jesus is faithful over God's house as a what? As a son. That automatically catapults him far beyond what Moses will ever be. Moses is a servant. Jesus is the son. It's worth mentioning as well that there's a switch in verse 6 from Jesus to Christ. The author, as he, he was referencing Jesus up to that point, and he switches over to Christ, which is emphasizing the messianic quality of the son, his identity as God. So here's a summary statement. Jesus, the son, is the sovereign savior of God's house. He built it, he made it, he sustains it, and he is over it. He is the sovereign son over God's house. So at this point, then, there's an obvious question. Who's in God's house? It's kind of where we began. How do you know if you're in God's house? I offered a variety of things, but this passage focuses in on this idea of perseverance. God's house has always been inhabited by believers, those who have entrusted themselves to Christ. And I, I do want to make just a quick distinction some people will think that in the Old Testament, people gained salvation differently than we do in the New Testament, and that is absolutely false. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. The difference is in the Old Testament, Jesus obviously had not come yet. And all of the sacrificial system was meant to help them anticipate a final sacrifice that would actually cover all of their sins. So the Old Testament believers are looking forward to a Messiah, to Jesus Christ. New Testament believers are looking backward to the cross, to the person of Christ. We've seen him in the sense that we know that he came. But both believers end up at the same place, don't they? At the foot of the cross. That is where salvation is found. We mentioned that salvation is by grace through faith. And so having established those conditions, what about this idea of perseverance? It's a little bit tricky when we come to the end of verse 6. It says, we are his house. Remember, he's speaking to those holy brothers and sisters who have been called by God. Remember that? He's saying, we are his house, and then... He says, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So it sounds like if you don't hold fast, if you don't persevere, then you're not in God's house. Well, does that mean that you can be in God's house and then get kicked out of God's house because you didn't persevere to the end? Well, wouldn't that mean that we have to perform at some level 
in order to maintain our status in God's house. And if that's the case, then doesn't that sound like works and not grace? Doesn't that sound like we have to somehow perform well enough? And the next question has to be, well, how good is good enough? And what I'll tell you is, it's never good enough. Your performance will never be good enough. Our only shred of assurance is the performance of Christ and what he has done. So rather than thinking of perseverance, again, as a condition for keeping salvation, we should think of it as an indication that we have been saved. It's not the only sign of life, but certainly when we see a person get to the end of their life and they have remained faithful to Christ, imperfect for sure, but they have remained faithful, then that's a good sign that there really was life uh, in place. The authenticity of our faith is proven by our perseverance, not our perfection. Um, I want to mention to you one of our values, and this is why we have this value in place, a long obedience in the same direction. That's perseverance. No one does that perfectly, but it's a good sign of life. Last thing I'll mention about Moses, let's come back to him since he's in the text. Do you guys remember that Moses didn't actually enter the promised land? And do you remember why? That was a consequence of something that he did while Israel was in the wilderness. I'll just look up Deuteronomy 32. So in some ways you could look at Moses and go, well, was he in God's house? Look in uh, Matthew 17. Who shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? That's pretty encouraging, isn't it? And there's a long list of people who have followed in very flawed ways. Peter probably being the foremost. (laughs) Isn't that encouraging? Persecution, I mean not persecution, sorry. Perseverance is just staying at it. And if you fall down, you get up. And you just keep walking. And you ask for help. Hanging on to the end. Let me expand the big idea to close. God's family members need to focus on the faithfulness of Jesus as a means of persevering in their faith to the end. How do you persevere? Consider Jesus. Fix your gaze on him. Let him consume your thoughts. And you will finish well. Take a minute and uh, ask the question, so what? And perhaps the, the one question that might stand out for you, it was for me, is that backstop question. What is it that's kind of your go-to if things aren't working out in uh, the world of Christianity, if life is hard and things are not going as you expected? What can you revert to in an effort to find life and significance and security when you're called to find those things in one place in Christ. Take a moment and prayerfully consider that.
stand with me if you would. I want to pray and ask the Lord to direct our thinking. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word and um, I'm an insecure person and maybe there are others here as well that feel some insecurity around our walk with you. And Lord, I pray that you would give us great assurance not in our performance but far more in our dependence that we just simply like the disciples said to you Lord where else would we go (laughs) you alone have the words of eternal life that can't be found anywhere else so we we say it again and again and again Lord you are our hope You are the way, the truth, and the life. Sustain us, protect us, lead us, bring us home. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.